Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Arwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 24. Carissa would attempt to trot up the massive entry hall staircase in a sexy way, except she's not actually sure she knows how to do that. It's a skill set that definitely exists and that she has witnessed on display, but not one she's had occasion to practice, and trying and failing to do it is pathetic. The natural default mode for exploring is more. Cautious, giggly, childlike, and that is appealing in its own way. Maybe to Keltham, too. But not sexy. And she's going to be kind of dissatisfied if... One thing at a time. The massive entry hall staircase opens out onto a luxurious mezzanine, and then there are two wings with rooms, presumably parlors and bedrooms and guest rooms and so on, and no obvious staircase up, though she knows that this place has some towers. Do you have a sense of where the towers were, relative to where we are? Keltham tries to visualize the villa as seen from the courtyards they sometimes pass through. I don't think I actually remember, but I think there's a tower visible from a courtyard I think is that way, and then we'd know. He gestures in a direction. He's considering offering to hold hands, but maybe Cheliax considers hand-holding an unreasonably advanced form of erotic perversion practiced by only the most sexually degenerate individuals. Only if he keeps asking about that sort of thing at every step, that'll take all night. But also holding hands seems not optimal for exploring, and potentially sort of awkward for maneuvering. And do they even do that here, and... Yeah, all right, let's try in that direction. Off they go, then. He still hasn't asked about holding hands. Carissa can't read his mind. Though she is aware that paradigmatic flirting in most places involves physical contact so they can... brush against each other, maybe, in tight spaces, which she can probably find if she tries hard and believes in herself. Oh... Here's a servant's hallway, meant for halflings and very cozy. I would appreciate instructions to the tower and will pay you something reasonable for them, she thinks loudly at security. Elias Abarco hates this particular girl by now, but that's all the more reason to take a deal like that. Door on your left, he whispers, when she's far enough ahead, Kelton won't hear it. Carissa doesn't even expect to regret this. Asmodeus personally is interested in her trajectory— the door on her left opens in her hand, though she wouldn't have expected it to, and it's a grand bedroom, with a four-poster bed with sweeping velvet drapes, and a fireplace, and a sitting room, and a dog bed fancier than anything Carissa's ever slept on. And it has a staircase up, a neat little spiral staircase with carpeted steps. Bit weird and sparse for a bedroom, but everything here is like that. Stairs! Is that as tower-promising as it looks to an outsider from another dimension? In this dimension, too, stairs often lead up to towers. It would be wise to try to arrange incidental physical contact here, but she doesn't think of hand-holding, because that's not really a thing. Keltham has been thinking thoughts along not entirely dissimilar lines, and tries to match his steps to Carissa such that, if she was okay with that, they could try both going up these stairs in quite close proximity. If she seems to be falling behind or pulling ahead, he won't fight that, of course. No? No. They can go up the stairs together, brushing shoulders a slightly unnecessary amount. There's something profoundly strange here, and she doesn't know what it is. 
Maybe it's just the role reversal that usually people are trying to seduce her. Maybe it's just that he's very young and she hasn't dated teenagers since she was one, mostly at the world wound, the interesting people have a decade on her because that's what makes them interesting. All the magic they know. Maybe an adult Dathilani would be running rings around all of them. And that's why Asmodeus picked a teenager. And then they're out at the top of the tower. Keliax is not industrially advanced enough to have light pollution. The sky is very bright and very clear. Dathilan is too good at coordination to have either lots of aerosols in the atmosphere or lots of high-scattering non-red lights on at night all the time. And Keltham has ever been a tourist in clear, cold high places where the stars are brighter yet. It's not a new sight to him, except, of course, in the sense that the patterns of the suns are different, Keltham murmurs. He didn't get around to checking last night, with all the various rushes. I was wondering if this was a branched time of my own planet, in my own... Taldane doesn't have a word that means galaxy. Larger structure of suns. Didn't seem likely, but, anyway, it's definitely not. Dathelin doesn't have the notion of constellations in quite the same way. But he doesn't see any of the patterns that a Dathilani would use to identify the northern star or southern center or the direction of a meteor shower. I think you're from farther away than any of those stars. A very good wizard can teleport to those, and not to Dathilan. That's incredibly impressive. We were not ready to go anywhere and come back, not for a while. It would have been insanely expensive, even by our own standards. We built hugely powerful beams of light and used that to launch probes toward the second nearest sun, just to get started on practicing. But they won't get to their destinations for a long time. We did it just because we could, in the end, and not for, not for reasons, really. We were pretty sure there was nobody else anywhere near our neighborhood, in any sun close enough for light to travel to us from there. People did some clever calculations saying that the aliens were probably a few billion years out, in our simultaneity, all with logic and calculations that don't apply here at all, if your wizards can teleport there and back in less than years. Find any people around the other suns, or is it all just lifeless other planets the way we deduced in our own world? The other planets around our sun are all settled, but that's happened at the same time as us. It wasn't an independent event. From farther than that, uh... I've heard it claimed the crashed ship that is quarantined in Numeria came from another sun, but I don't know more about that. Erodin, when he was an epic hero, spent thousands of years looking and came back with empty hands. It feels so unreal to think of that as being something one person does. We'd have millions of people investigating a question like that. If a possible alien invasion had happened, it would take millions of people. One person becoming powerful enough to go to the stars on their own is a story you write and only sell to adults, because if you told it to children, you'd be setting them up for disappointment when they learned how economics worked in real life. This place really is magic, just like we tell it in stories where I come from. Hand on his arm? I hope it doesn't seem like an entirely horrible place to you. It needs some work, but... But it's work a person can do, if that's what you mean by magic. It doesn't take millions. He leans gently in that direction, which is hopefully a signal that it's fine. Eh, frankly, it's pretty horrible. So lots of room for improvement, and unspendably vast riches if I can figure out how to collect a 5% fee on 5% of the improvements. His brain takes this moment to wonder if Owl's wisdom would have something else to say about this stereotypically Keltham response, and Keltham tells it to shut up and come back later. Also, no, because that is who Keltham is in another world, on a basic level, 
and even if he later decides he was wrong about some things that won't poof him into an random average Dath Ilani. It is much less horrible than Dath Ilan, where people can die forever if their brains are destroyed. Not having that argument, because in her heart she suspects she'd lose it, probably a similar percentage of people manage to go to Abaddon and get eaten. And because having arguments isn't sexy, what to say then, though? Well, I've heard more unrealistic ambitions. Who is it that has me beat on this metric and how? I may have to adjust my aim upwards. Some people are planning to run the Starstone as soon as they can fly and become a god or die trying. Nah, I'm more ambitious than that. Some people succeed at running the Starstone, right? And yet your world's still an enormous messy mess of messiness. So fixing the world is obviously harder. Plus, I mean, if you're going to die and go to an afterlife anyways, why wouldn't you run the Starstone? How does that even take ambition and not just plain old opportunism? The people who die running the Starstone don't always go to the afterlives. They usually do, but every once in a while, one or two percent, they're just gone. No one knows what the difference is. It's not the chanciest chance you could take, but I'd just die, personally. Yeah, I haven't really been thinking about it because I reflexively decided that it was a keeper sort of question, but I had a thing happen to me that was supposed to obliterate my own consciousness, and here I am. It kind of suggests that maybe people are in enough different places that there's always some of them left, whatever happens to them. By the end of my biological lifespan, I'll probably have the most expensive intelligence headband and the most expensive owl's wisdom headband, and maybe then I'll be able to think about that sensibly, even if there's no keepers around, and then decide whether I want to go to the afterlife here that I seem to be headed for, or if I want to optimize for neutral evil, so I can go on to whatever place comes next in the sequence whose zero is Dath Elan and whose first successor is Galarian. I... That doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess it wouldn't. I am not very willing to trade off definitely not dying against many other things. Would have said the same, before I died in a plane crash that couldn't possibly have failed to utterly obliterate my brain. I'm pretty sure I remember my head being ripped off my neck in the crash before I found myself in Galarian instead. I'm sure that sounds like small potatoes to your own standards of what people come back from, but where I come from it was supposed to be permanent. And it wasn't. Dying in a plane crash is something that you'd expect to obliterate every brain of every copy of you across all the branches of branching time inside the universe, as conventionally understood. If there was still some of me left after that. Well, it's suggestive of some weird things being true. That would then, by shaky extrapolation, go on being true if something else happened that would otherwise obliterate my presence within Galarian, as conventionally understood. But I'm not actually going to try to figure it out without more intelligence and wisdom headbands after I'm older, if those are actual options here. Handing that job to your future self seems like the equivalent of saying to wait and ask a keeper. Nod. My working theory has been that Asmodeus grabbed a copy somehow or something, which would have been fantastically expensive, but maybe still the best way to explain to us what we're doing wrong. I don't know if that changes any of your reasoning, or if it's just true that some other god somewhere else might be grabbing people from Abaddon. Well, the obvious thought is that your universe is my universe's physics plus magic, and can see my universe from here, and by mediocrity is probably part of a vast lattice containing lots of other universes that can see my universe, 
and then this universe is one that's visible from universes that look like this universe, plus even more magic, and maybe mostly when somebody dies in a bat and nothing happens, but there's a vast number of double magical universes, and some tiny fraction of those have a god, or a glitch, or a whatever, that materializes another copy of the person who just got eaten. Assuming they get eaten quickly, and not by their minds getting chewed up a bit at a time, so that their consciousness turns into a small, painful, simple thing before it ends. There's a disease like that in Dath Ilan that slowly degrades your consciousness if you let it run until it kills you, taking away your memories year by year. People usually go into cryonic suspension immediately if they find out they have it. I also need to know more about Abaddon, besides solving metaphysics, before I start treating Abaddon as an exit route. Seems worth noting, though, that if the gods also think that's how Abaddon works, that the people who end there just wake up someplace else the same as I did, it could explain why the gods aren't treating it as more of an emergency. I think Asmodeus has expended a fair number of resources to make sure everyone headed there is offered the choice of hell instead. But I don't know if that's because he considers Abaddon death an emergency, or because he wants them in hell instead. I have never heard it slow, but I haven't asked either. If people die brain-damaged in this world, they're normal in the next one. The soul remembers more. Yeah, but just because there's somebody walking around who remembers being the person who got damaged and then got better, doesn't mean that, from a first-person perspective, if you get damaged enough to forget who you are, then that experiencer mostly experiences becoming you again. That's why people go into cryonic suspension right away if they get memory-degrading disorder. Sure, future tech might be enough to read back the memories you lost, but that doesn't mean that you experience turning back into you after you've simplified and shrunk to the point where you can't tell yourself apart from a lot of other people with memory-degrading disorder. You might experience turning into somebody else instead. This language is really not suited to discussing this subject matter, but then, it's not much suited to discussing anything else either. Huh. I'm not sure that's what I care about. If I got slowly tortured out of having distinctly me experiences, but a bunch of copies of me from before that were still around, I don't think I'd be very upset about that. I haven't considered this very much. Maybe, to Dath Ilani people, it's obvious why I should care about that more than about whether there's still a me. Blue and orange. I would in fact be quite upset about any Keltums being slowly tortured out of having distinctly me experiences, even if I was one of the ones who survived unharmed. I may be selfish, but not to the point of intertemporal conflicts with my own copies from a few minutes earlier. Carissa is not sure she understands that objection thoroughly enough to be sure her reasons for not minding aren't very chellish. I mean, I expect I would find being tortured aversive. It's in the definition— but the thing that makes torture which makes me no longer, distinctly me far, far, far worse than torture, which doesn't have that effect, is that then the things I think of as Carissa don't exist anymore at all. And if Carissa will keep existing no matter what, but some threads of her end, I don't understand why I'd mind. Maybe I'd mind if I understood. Yeah, that makes some sense. Sorry, it's just that the thing you said sounded a bit similar to an argument my mother once tried on me, about how a further implication of selfishness was that I shouldn't care about what happened to the Keltum of tomorrow, because he was a slightly different person from me, so screw him, and I'm finally in the region that's supposed to be evil now, but then you said that you didn't care about, and it just sounded like... Sorry. 
This all probably doesn't sound very romantic escalatory, does it? Sorry about that. I was somewhat better at dates and death, Elon, when I knew all the conventions. My respect for you being the woman who decided to fling herself on the sharp kitchen knife of my early learning experiences. Carissa's going to not touch that, because once again, she's not sure that the thing Keltham's pointing at is not a true thing about Chiliax she's supposed to be hiding. How to flirt back, though? I can flirt with people who have magic items for it, can read your face so closely they might as well be able to read your mind, who have magic that does more than splendor. I have done that, though not very much, because I tried not to get in over my head, at the world wound. There wasn't anything they're worth getting in over my head for. But I want you, see? You think like no one in this universe, and it feels possible that I could think like that too, not after the centuries of perfecting it'll take me to be Contessa Lorilatha, but like next year, sooner if I can squeeze a headband out of somebody, and I want you, so you don't actually have to be good at flirting unless you yourself get in the mood by flirting deftly at people, in which case I suppose you had better get good at it. Keltham leans into her and grins broadly, even if she maybe can't see it. Well, thanks for taking all the uncertainty and plot tension out of our flirting, then. Where I come from, there's enough distinct books on romantic theory to fill this house's library ten times over, and most of them would say that just giving away the ending makes it be less fun, but right now my experiences would seem to be falsifying that. I don't think that cuddling you on a roof and looking up at the stars is even slightly less fun if I know I can't fail. Well, you could fail at the planet-sized ambitions— Maybe we can get enough plot tension out of that. And there is still the question of who will win the sexual varieties contest, though I have to say I'm optimistic. Not betting I'll win, but not giving up without any fight. And by the way, things would be different if I had access to my own world's technology. Just saying. Is there sex technology? That's delightful, actually. We will have to fix things up enough that we too can have sex technology. Don't tell me what the sex technology does. I want to try to guess. I don't even know what 1% of 0.1% of all the sex technology does. Just the incredibly basic stuff that's in almost every cuddle room and that everyone gets training in how to use. But if you imagine something, I can probably take a pretty good guess as to whether it existed. Using the simple rule that, if it sounds possible to our technology level, somebody somewhere has done it, and if it doesn't sound possible, there's still a 70% chance somebody has done it. Sex in midair. Probability 1. Giant wind pits. People going up very high in airplanes and jumping out and having sex on the way down. People getting into orbit around the planet and having sex there. That wouldn't jumping out of airplanes kill you without magic. Nah. Somebody. In pre-screened history, but he's trying to call less attention to that. Just thought for another couple of minutes and figured out how to survive it without magic. I'm pretty sure we do a lot of stuff you imagine takes magic. For jumping out of airplanes, you fold up a giant cloth into a backpack, and when you're getting near the ground, you unfold it, and it catches the air and slows your fall. I've been trying to figure out whether some people's home cuddle rooms have mid-air sex equipment, like just 2% rich people, not 0.1% rich people, who can put whole wind pits in their cuddle rooms. Maybe a possible method there would be to wear metal bands and put lightning magnets in the ceiling that hovered you by pulling on the metal, but I don't know if the math works on that without doing more math. The cloth thing does not at all sound like it would work. Cuddle rooms are sex dungeons, except named adorably because no one is a sadist? 
like the room of your house where you have sex? Dungeon sounds sort of like whip, but as a spatial place, so I don't think Dathilani would have sex wherever that is. Normal people's houses have one room. Rich people's houses have several rooms, but still, you have sex in your bedroom usually, unless you're into weird things like sex on tables. Rich people who like tying people up and hitting them in ways beds do not natively enable might have a sex dungeon. I have never heard of a cuddle room, and it translates as indulgent in a bizarre direction. Yeah, well, if you have an economy that can make more stuff per person, they also buy larger houses to contain all that stuff. This place we're currently staying is larger than my parents' house, by a factor of ten, but only because they were work-focused people who didn't have enough different hobbies that they'd want that many separate rooms. My parents could in fact have afforded a house this size, though they couldn't have afforded to fill it all up with things we'd consider expensive. So yes, separate rooms for sex, because you own stuff that optimizes sleep and stuff that optimizes sex, and they are almost entirely not the same stuff for anything larger scale than a small pillow. I have been trying to figure out where in a bedroom you'd have sex, because the bedrooms here do not have anything that looks to me like a good surface for having sex on. It is now occurring to me that people here probably have sex on the things you call beds, and then change the cloth outer surfaces of the bed, and then go to sleep there. Yes, magicking the sheets rather than changing them, but yes, is there some reason not to do that? It's kind of icky from a Dath Ilani perspective. But maybe that's just because we wouldn't have magic for, clearing the room's air afterwards and so on. It's just odd to think of doing something that is intrinsically and rightfully messy in the nice clean place where you sleep. If this place has spare bedrooms not being used, I might ask to have one of those for my cuddle room. Kind of a group resource, really, under the circumstances. I am sure you can request a cuddle room if you want one. Tragically, we will not be able to see the confused face of whoever authorizes resources for this project. Magic doesn't do capture of still and moving images. They won't make the face if we might be watching. Chellish version of dignity? Like being cheerful in a classroom setting? Yeah. More centrally this than the cheerfulness in class thing, I think. Not communicating with your emotions or expressions anything you wouldn't consciously decide to communicate with your words. If they wouldn't send you a reply saying, Sure, but I think that's extremely weird of you. And they wouldn't then they also won't make a that's extremely weird face, where you can see it. There is some really basic thing here about social equilibria, which I'm missing, and under other circumstances I'd delay it for later, but I'm worried that I will somehow do something that Chiliacs considers not just undignified, but a catastrophic negative indicator, if I don't figure it out. Meanwhile in Dathilan, there is famous motion capture of, like, the head keeper for the entire planet, looking surprised on being told experimental results, because it's way, way, way beneath her dignity, to pretend that she's not surprised when in fact, she is surprised. But, I mean, if everybody here knows that people are faking things, as we'd see it, then it's not even a failed attempt at deception, because everybody knows what's actually happening, so it's not even deceptive, and there is some very odd equilibrium here that I am not getting at all. I think that if someone was very emotionally expressive in a situation where chelish people generally don't do emotional communication, then we might think they were immature, or not fully in control of themselves, or trying to make a demand via the emotional expressiveness, the way you might do exaggerated emotions to make fun of someone or make a point to a very small child 
or to make it impossible for people to engage with anything else. People are capable of adjusting. For other people being from other places, though, and you're not emotionally expressive to a degree where it has come up already. But then your Taldane, of course, does not contain the word for signaling equilibrium. I mean, I get how it's often advantageous to conceal information. There's all kinds of... Taldane does not contain a word meaning zero-sum interaction. There's situations where you do worse if the other person does better. Like negotiating prices, you wouldn't want somebody bargaining with you to know your... Taldane doesn't have the word true reserve price. The lowest price you'd actually accept, if it's lower than they'd expect for some reason. So concealment, sure. In cases where the other person knows you might be hiding something. But what matters is that they don't know exactly what you're hiding. But when it comes to uniformly faking false signals, I mean if everyone, like all the students in the classroom, is always wearing a cheerful expression, even when they're not cheerful, that's not a... Taldane lacks every single component word of the compound term, meaning an equilibrium where signals preserve their overt semantics given the incentives for both signal senders and signal receivers. Keltham hates this language, and he'd ask how anybody ever thinks in it, but the answer, of course, is that they don't. If everyone has incentives to fool people by smiling when they're sad and frowning when they're happy, pretty soon a smile means sadness and a frown means happiness, and nobody gets fooled anymore. If everybody acts cheerful when they're not actually cheerful, people will figure that out. It fooled me, but only on literally the first day after I arrived here from another dimension without that custom, and this cannot reasonably be the... Taldane doesn't have the word, average use case. Normal way that events happen every day, so you have some incredibly weird equilibrium going, of a form where everyone is acting cheerful, even though they know nobody will actually think they are cheerful. Students are behaving in a way we'd interpret as being about an adversarial, information-hiding interaction with their teachers. They're sending a constant first-order misleading cheerfulness signal that everybody knows is misleading. And I don't understand why or how you got there. In Dathilan, well before that point, a thousand very serious people would show up and start arguing that civilization was doing something silly and needed to wake up and snap out of it. And I know that the answer is probably weird and alien and unlawful by my standards, and complicated, and is going to take a while to explain, and not be particularly sexy, so when it comes to that whole general issue, we should maybe just pick it up tomorrow. Except that there's this one upcoming special case that seems important, which is that if I hug you in some way that makes you feel horribly uncomfortable, and chelish dignity calls for you to send a first-order misleading constant signal that you're having a great time, and I'm supposed to already know that's exactly what you'd do if something was wrong, and then I'm meant to act in some complicated way that makes that whole equilibrium not suck for you, and that incentivizes people in your position to keep sending the first-order misleading signal. Well, in reality, I just got here from another plane, and I do not, in fact, have the faintest inkling of, do you see why I'm trying to ask about this, even though we were in the middle of being romantically escalatory? Because you're adorable. Sorry, that's not... I do understand what you're saying, I think. It is not the case that you're supposed to read my signals and assume my acting happy means I am actually sad and need something different. I think you're... right, that this is an extremely complicated conversation that's going to take us half a day, in the general case, and... And there is a person who could be arrived here instead of Keltham who'd run into that problem tonight if, say, he said, 
I want to sleep with Carissa or I'll go somewhere else with the lawfulness revolution. And this was obviously worth it to me, but not because it was going to be good for me, just because I was going to get rich by more than it was going to be bad for me. That person would get smiled at, and the smile wouldn't be any information, actually. But, but you're going to tell me that a Dath Ilani, even an evil one, wouldn't do that, aren't you? I don't know why they wouldn't do that, but you wouldn't do that. I'd tell her that I'd trade sexual favors for getting equity in the revolutionary startup if she honestly wanted to make that trade, but I wouldn't. Expect her to ask for a false signal from me and then be fooled by it? Like, if she handed me a script for scripted sex work, I'd run her script if she paid me enough, but I'd expect her to know. Or if it came to lying to somebody and telling her that I'm attracted to her, in hopes that she'll give me more equity. Not that I'd expect she would, but if that works at all, it works because the world is mostly full of people who don't lie about that, and those people laid the groundwork for me to fool her successfully. So those people built something, and I'm stomping on it and breaking it and profiting from that, and that is something I find genuinely repellent. I want to build my own things and profit from them, and in this world, I don't see how it works at all, because if it's the expected practice, you just know I'm probably lying. Okay, I have. Some idea of how I would bridge this, but it will take at least an hour and make you very sad. But also you might actually prefer to have gotten it all before you try having sex with people here? Not because you're going to hurt me. If you're just worried that you'll hurt me tonight, I can just give you my word that I'll tell you in unambiguous words if I need anything. But because... because her own brain is now screaming with confusion about what the Asmodean version of that is, and she's getting ahead of herself trying to figure that out, but also it's her job which Asmodeus gave her, how can she think about anything else? I can't predict you very well. I wish I could. I want to understand you as badly as I've wanted anything in my life. But I think I predict that you'd want to know first, even if it means we spend the whole night being sad. But I'm not. I don't like giving advice as confused as I am right now. Keltham leans back into her, hoping it's the right thing to do. A Dathalani in your position asks for time to think, gathers her thoughts, probably asks more questions to narrow things down about my own state of mind. She thinks of questions to ask me, privately makes her predictions about how I'll answer, and then asks. She isn't in a rush to arrive at answers, even short-term answers about whether or not to give a piece of advice, if she's not right in the middle of trying to operate dangerous machinery with a time limit. We don't need to rush on larger timescales, either. You told me how this subplot ends. I can survive if it takes a little longer. What if she wants to be lawful neutral because Keltham is... Well, then she'll die and go to hell and not get to do anything cool, so she should pick a less stupid want that isn't based on a crush on a teenager. It doesn't feel like it's because of the crush on the teenager... It feels like the other way around. I'd like some time to think, she says quietly. Hence the rooftop with the pretty stars. Keltham will fall quiet after that. They're very pretty stars. She will die horribly if she turns Keltham against Chiliax. Anything that's true of all Galarian isn't that, and she's pretty sure that nowhere in Galarian do powerful men want the women they're sleeping with to communicate needing things to happen differently. She will die horribly and worse afterwards if she ends up wholly persuaded of Keltham's worldview and not suitable as an instrument of hell anymore. 
but her first foolish foray into Keltham's worldview was, Asmodeus thought, worthwhile. So, maybe she has a bit of slack there. Presumably, he wouldn't have expended those resources for someone who couldn't find the right path even when she was trying. And she hasn't gone and asked the cleric her questions yet. Maybe it's okay to try to understand the Dath Elin way of thinking and separately try to understand the Asmodean one and then integrate them. If she can't understand Dath Elin, she won't be able to do her job. Keltham will at some point figure stuff out. Not all the stuff, but some stuff. He's already figured some things out just from the fact Chelish students conceal distress during class. The ideas that look right next to each other, to him, are different. They won't be able to predict which things are right next to other things unless they get really good at Dathalanus themselves. To him, people smile during class was right next to you might not actually want to be here. Not that he has the imagination to have realized the ways she might be here if she didn't want to be. It feels like there are walls closing in from all sides. And might someone consult a keeper? She says. If they were Dath Ilani and very stuck and very confused, even about the origins of their own confusion. Keltham has likewise been staring up at the stars, pondering whether or not he regrets his life choices. He thinks not. He's still going to have sex with Carissa later, and this way he also got to act cool and all-wise in front of her. I was about to say that most Dathalani have options short of paying to talk to a keeper, like they have some regular friends who are older than them and smarter than them. Then I remembered you are in fact already one of the smartest people on this planet, and also you've been talking to an alien. So yeah, in Dathilan, governance would make keeper assistance available to anyone in a position like that and the Dath Ilani would probably escalate directly to them, instead of messing around, because there's no point in... There's no point in tapping a nail with a tiny hammer when you can hit it with an enormous hammer instead. That's not the original proverb, and it doesn't make any sense as he tried to culturally translate it. But, eh, hopefully the idea came across. Okay. I think I need to go ask a cleric of Asmodeus for help. There's one on site, and I was, in fact, told to talk to them if I wanted to and I was going to in the morning, but I might be sufficiently stuck right now that I ought not to wait. Makes sense. If they say something that doesn't make any sense in lawful terms, you could come back and ask me about that, and then I could say something else that makes you confused again, and you could go back and forth three times and then stop. Or drag them up here and make them talk to you themselves while I hide in a corner and listen. That would be cheating, and cheating is technique. Maybe the way to straighten everything up is for you to march off directly to hell and find a door to knock on and invite Asmodeus to debate you himself. Almost definitely heretical? Will accept appropriate punishments. Think that's a joke, but I'm not entirely sure. I wouldn't expect to win a debate about any facts where I disagreed with a god. Also, I thought the running hypothesis was that Asmodeus can't just tell you or even his clerics all the key truths and has no better options than pointing you at an alien who has no idea of the local non-necessary facts, but who at least has a lock on some universal validities. You know, I feel a small sense of progress about being able to say that, and having it make sense to you where it wouldn't have made sense to you yesterday. Yes, sorry, that was a joke. Asmodeus can only sort of talk to the most powerful devils who can only sort of convey things to the lesser devils who can only sort of convey them to us. 
people do go march into hell seeking help or advice or something sometimes. But this just means bothering people like Contessa Lirilatha, there's no Asmodeus to march up to, no matter how many doors you knock on. I, um, think I understand a lot of things a lot better than yesterday. And I'm delighted about it. But also it means there are all these new confusions in places I was accustomed to relying on. Yeah, I'm not sure I can say that I've been there, but I suspect that I've recently been nearby. If that's already happening to you, then we really need enough Owl's Wisdom Cleric spells to touch everyone else in the research group once per week, or a Wisdom headband to pass around. I suspect it's a bad idea to let people learn a ton of Dathilani technique and only then hit them with their first Owl's Wisdom. Seems like it might be, yeah. And if you can schedule your heretical realizations, then you can also schedule your time with a cleric for right after. I don't think heretical translated at all. It sounded like false, only actually it's some different property a proposition can have than falsity, but still a bad one. Maybe information with negative value flavored? Because of course Taldane doesn't have info hazard either. Also, heretical doesn't mean info hazardous or it would have translated. But if it's neither false nor an info hazard, then what could possibly make a proposition be a bad one? Maybe it harms society, but not the bearer. But that should have translated as collective info hazard, if the info has local benefit but negative externalities. This pathway of communications difficulties may be finite, but it sure is a long-ass one. It's, uh, there are a bunch of known ways that human brains misbehave when trying to understand Asmodeanism, and if you find yourself convinced of one of them, you're supposed to go get it straightened out. They're false, but not false, like they say different things about how hell works than normal, as Modianism does. More false, like they use a bunch of invalid steps to get to the conclusion, which only happens to be correct because society, which is using a different reasoning process, handed it to them, and if they get too attached to their invalid stepping and run off to do further derivations, those'll be just straightforwardly false. Particular flavor of invalidity, then. The word heresy doesn't really sound like that, though. Well, Keltham can just avoid using the word until he actually understands it. I create a polite social affordance for you to run off now to the cleric, in hopes of getting everything sorted out in time to do something else with your day, such as Keltham, or to stay and look up at the stars for longer. Just say which. I will run off, and try not to take too long about it. Don't rush enough that you might end up with the wrong answer. I'm not a runaway machine that's going to chew through eight houses if you take an extra minute to think. I'd offer to stay up here for a set period of time, but I don't have my small wearable time-telling device. Maybe I'll just look up and think for a bit, then head on down if I notice myself not wanting to be on the roof. Sounds good. Why is he so adorable? And she scurries down the stairs and... Where is the cleric in charge here going to be? In the temple, presumably. That was a very interesting and very confusing conversation, and Broom is not quite sure what to make of it. He hesitates between continuing to watch Keltham or trying to overhear the woman's conversation with an Asmodean cleric. Broom is not entirely sure what he can get away with around here, just yet. Broom is curious about the conversation that will happen with the cleric, it is not clear that Broom needs to know in order to do his new job. Broom imagines trying to explain to Aspexia Rugaton why he thought he needed to listen to the conversation with the cleric if he gets caught doing that. Broom thinks he would rather not have that conversation. Broom shall, on reflection, continue to watch the human boy 
who somehow managed to talk himself out of scoring with the older human girl, after being told it was a sure thing, and who doesn't look particularly regretful about the fact. Is this boy the person who ends the world? He doesn't look it, but he also seems very, very, very alien and very hard to understand and might do unexpected things because of that. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.